0: I'm joined on the line by Devi Shriver, who's a lecturer in population health at the University of Edinburgh and a researcher in population health at the University of Oxford. Now, she and colleagues have been writing in the BMJ about the WHO and the importance of a world-spanning, independent health organisation. Devi, you say the WHO is in crisis, so what's causing that? Is it a, funding thing? Is it political change in the governments who do the funding? What's going on? What's happening?
1: Yes, yeah, so I guess the crisis we could see in two areas, one being financial and the other being more broadly in governance. And I'll talk about each in turn. And with the financial issue, the problem is not in the total funding. Um, there's, a, there's a good case to be made that there's scope to do less, um, but better and more efficiently. And in fact, for all the talk of a financial crisis, um, the WHO's total revenues in 2012 13 in were almost $5 billion, which is still the highest ever. Yeah. The problem is the type of funding, um, that there's the split between core or assessed funding and voluntary funding. So, core assessed funding is actually what UN member states, as being part of the UN, as being member states, the WHO have to pay in year to year and voluntary funding is what they can choose to give each year, um, often for specific priorities um, or specific programs. And over the past 12 years, voluntary contributions have risen by almost 200%, while you could say the core funding, the assessed contributions, have only risen by about 10%. So in fact, The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, has been one of the major players in this area, and in 2013 is actually the biggest contributor to the WHO um, at over 300 million against the US, which used to be the largest, which, which, which fell back a bit. And the problem with this kind of split and with voluntary contributions is that they're on the whole pretty inflexible and earmarked for specific priorities. So this leads to questions over who sets the WHO's agenda is it actually the big donors who are giving the money who versus their their priorities and what they would like the organization to do and this results in an inability of the WHO to respond meaningfully to actually what member states you know all member states across the world actually wanted to do as you know discussed and negotiated in its governing bodies and the main one being the World Health Assembly mm-hmm. and though i mean the big donors have said that you know that they'll be willing to make some of this voluntary funds flexible in the sense, trying to put an overhead on this um, on this funding in a sense, saying okay, part of it should be be, be able to use flexibly and go to kind of the core priorities or the organization. Um, it's been shown that only about you know eight percent of the funds are actually being given in a flexible way, so quite you could say it's a small a small percentage. And so, um, I mean, Nary um, Woods and I have referred to this in... and. As, as Trojan multilateralism, because it looks like an international institution, but it's actually being used to achieve, you know, individual government or small group goals or the Gates Foundation goals, while giving the appearance and the branding of being, you know, the WHO. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worth also noting the transaction costs with this, because when you have, you know, over 200 different voluntary contributors to the WHO and, you know, separate agreements for each of those, there's there's huge administration costs. Um, and... And a recent study estimated that these could be, you know, close to 250 million a year, just in terms of kind of trying to administer so many different grants and and, and agreements.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I mean, there's a larger governance issue as well, which is, you know, unlike the world post World War II, you know, WHO was, you know, born out of the war. It was delegated the chief coordinator and director of international health work. It was given kind of, you know, the preeminent spot on the world stage. Um, I mean, uh, you know, the world has moved on and changed, um, and the most notable, um, you know, shift has been to non-state actors, meaning here civil society, the private sector, um, other kinds of, um, you know, philanthropies, um, partnerships, among all of these, and the challenge for the WHO now is to engage with this wider state of stakeholders, right? If it wants to fulfill this coordination role and actually somehow manage it, it has to engage with these. But on the other hand, it's an inter, you know, intergovernmental body. It was set up just you know, to allow member states to have a decision making, and that's something that you know, governments cling very closely to. And also, there's this issue of how do you actually preserve your integrity when you're doing kind of you know, making key decisions about health from vested interests like the private sector, or big business, who are um, who are, are you know sense knocking on the door to, to get you know into the, to the table. So those are kind of the, the two big areas I'd see as why it's, in, it's, it's right now in crisis.
0: And, um, and if I just pick you up on that point about the different sort of fundings, um, where are the tensions there? Where would the WHO and the World Health Assembly, where would their priorities sit as opposed to the different funding governments supplying the funding? Is that skewing the work that's going on?
1: Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a great question. I think what you see is if we look at actually what role the WHO should be and why it was created. Um, It was actually created so that you know countries would compromise you know their short-term differences and short-term goals in order to attain kind of the long-run advantages of when you regularly you know get together and collaborate on health matters. And here you know rules become very important and and what you can say as um, you know areas where individual states cannot cannot manage alone. I mean much of achieving good health can be done at the national or local level Um, but there are certain functions, necessary action, you know necessary areas of collective action that you know individual states cannot undertake alone. And the problem with this type of slit of funding is that ironically the bulk of the growth in this funding, this kind of voluntary contributions, have not been for this kind of you know normative work, core work of actually you know why we actually need an international institution um, it's actually been going for development aid, technical assistance, um, what you can call supportive services to countries. Um, and these could be, you know, arguably better supplied by other bodies and institutions who are working in this area. Um, so it's this is some of the challenge that where it's best placed to work mm-hmm. and where it's its unique advantage um, is right now on the global stage is actually not where the funding is, is going. Um, and, and part of this split actually is, is, is who gives that funding. So the assessed contributions, you know, basically come from governments and those are represented in the World Health Assembly by Ministries of Health.
0: Yeah.
1: Where much of the growth in the voluntary funding has come from either non-state actors, you know, like the Gates Foundation and others, but also by parts of government such as development agencies, um, who therefore have a different lens as to why they use WHO and how they use it in a way to deliver the goals that they're trying to achieve. Um, so this is kind of the the tension mm. that's, that, that's, that's there right now.
0: And given what you've said there about the sort of competing interests that are filtering through the WHO and also the fact that it has to work with these new voluntary agencies who are organizations that might actually be better placed to supply some of the services that are needed. I mean, do you think the the role of the who what should it be have you got a perfect scenario in your head
1: well i think i mean there the starting point should be should, should be two i mean there should be two starting points one is that you know competition is a good thing and it's good that actually countries have more choices in terms of shopping around for the best institution or form to achieve their you know achieve their goals um and so who should not you know Try to do everything that could be done by others, whether it's governments, other agencies, other organizations, and that's not only true at the at the global level, but also you know at the regional and country level. You know, it has to really think about the comparative advantage vis-a-vis these other these other players, and the other starting point is you know there's a lot as I said that um, national level that countries that countries can do, um, but there are I just wanted to highlight again, and this is what we try to do in the article. Um, you know, some of the Some of the areas where you really do need an organization like the WHO and managing infectious disease um, is a key part of this and this is why we really do see, you know, the only time we've seen kind of major changes is when, um, you know, extraordinary events occur like SARS and now with MERS where, you, you know, countries realize, oh, you know, we need an international institution to have a collective agreement in, such as the international health regulations. We need to coordinate international action to combat a pandemic or control disease. And it's about you know creating rules that all countries have to abide by, um, and of course, countries don't want to give up their sovereignty. But you saw countries even like China, you know, you know, because of SARS a decade back, saying actually we need to have global rules to protect, mm. to protect all of us. Um, so I think this is where when you talk about what the WHO's role should be, where a lot of thinking needs to come back to, which is this area of global rulemaking. Um, it's normative work, as you could say. The area of global health law has been, you know, discussed quite extensively, but the only organization that can create binding legal agreements um, is the WHO. And so I think this is kind of, you know, these kind of opportunities um, make, uh, I mean, in a sense, um, infectious disease um, outbreaks make countries realize actually why you need a body like WHO. And it's... um, and 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 we can go into specific examples of it but those i mean that's generally kind of the um the main argument that we try to make in the paper
0: sure sure um so you think then the who uh, and you know it's been going since nine fourteen eight and it's grown and it's grown and it's grown and it's got more funding this year than ever before do you think it really needs to to refocus really think about where its key core mission should be, and then to see some of the the money and the power it controls to some of these other development agencies. Yeah,
1: I think that's um, that's right. And I mean, and again, to its credit, you know, there has been um, quite a significant internal reform process that um, that's been ongoing um, to look at this. And the you know the recent WHO general program of work did highlight this kind of. Unique role WHO can play. It highlights, you know, providing leadership, shaping the research agenda, and the generation, translation, and dissemination of research, setting norms and standards, articulating evidence-based policy options, managing, um, you know, managing country expectations in this area. And so, I think, I mean, in a sense, there is awareness, definitely by the secretariat and 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 and, and by the director general of of this of this push, and. And where you've seen the biggest successes by WHO has been in this area, is in the sense of if you think of the international health regulations, um, you know, countries really needed to trust WHO to say that they were going to report, you know, outbreaks and use this health information impartially in the interests of public health. Um, you know, countries trusted the WHO to take on, you know, research and development, which is a very contentious issue. How do you reconcile the trade off between incentives for research by keeping prices high and ensuring widespread you know, widespread access by keeping prices low. I think um, you've had a major success recently also by the, you know, which reflects, you know, how hard the WHO has to work in this area regarding benefit sharing, um, where you only could have within the WHO a framework concerning the sharing of, you know, influenza virus samples and then the fair access to vaccines and treatments um, based on the research coming out of that sharing. Mm. Um, and this was a highly contentious issue prompted, you know, by the Indonesian health minister's refusal to supply, you know, H5N1 virus samples to the WHO and its collaborating centers, um, you know, amidst his concerns about an outbreak of avian flu because, you know, she invoked the principle of viral sovereignty, saying, you know, why should we share our viruses if we're probably not going to be able to afford, you know, the vaccines or drugs that are going to be sold back to us at extremely high prices and unavailable to the vast majority of my people, which is a very fair point. And so there was, you know, multiple negotiations trying to establish a framework for how you actually, you know, get countries to share, you know, viruses um, and, and then the resulting access to vaccines, which also includes, of course, industry mm. as an important player. And an agreement was reached, and it's imperfect, but the only place you could reach it is the WHO. So I think this kind of thinking um, is is very much there, and it's... And it's just a shame that what you have instead is an institution that instead of working in these kind of areas and having support for this and growing in these areas, it's an institution that actually has to deliver for funders on specific priorities, which are arguably not what it's placed to do. Um, and, and donors, of course, I mean, the secretary has tried to say you know, to donors, this is our plan, this is what's agreed at the World Health Assembly. If you want to fund, fund within that plan. Choose what you want within it to fund. Um, and it's early days to say, I mean, it's all in the past couple of years, but if you look at the funding, it still seems that donors want to be able to control the funding that they give, and they're, and they're, you know, clear incentives for that, of how they try to control and manage the organization, especially if that funding is coming from, you know, the parts of government and organizations that are not represented, actually, on on, on how the WHO is governed and decisions are made, in a sense, why would you give money to an organization where you don't really have any say in what's done with it? Um, and so, this is this is the tension
0: that that is there. That was W.E. Shriver from the Universities of Oxford and Edinburgh talking about the future of the WHO. If you want to read more about that, the article is now available on bmj.com.